Hey everyone, welcome back to another Lunch Break with Kyle. Um, today I have my brother-in-law, McKay. Hello. Hey Kyle, hey. great to be here. Great to be here. It just seems to be the way to start a podcast, right? It's like, man, I'd rather not be here, but... <laughs> Flew in for the event. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I am glad to be here. I'm an avid listener. Thank you. Okay, so today's topic is something that you're passionate about, I would say, right? Absolutely. And it's something that's probably misunderstood by most people because they just hear about it and don't know what that actually means. So the, the, the today's topic is philosophy. So first things first, what even is philosophy? Well, I'm this sure people, is... I'm sure people ask you that all the time. Uh, no, they usually try to avoid the topic. Oh. Um, <laughs> so I think a lot of our listeners are going to hear what I'm going to say and think to themselves, okay, this is why I don't get involved in this, but here it goes. Well, that's a bit of a philosophical question. <laughs> so there are debates as to what counts as philosophy, for instance. Okay. But I think... There are not, there's no debates for who are philosophers, right? For no, the there, there totally are. There totally are. Yeah, there absolutely for that? are. Yeah. Oh. Socrates? No, that one's... That one's pretty well said. Okay. He, he was a philosopher. Yeah. But we can we can talk about that. I think, though, that there's a pretty easy way that most philosophers would say, yeah, that's what we're doing. We can talk about the details and we can talk about what fits in and what doesn't fit in. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of a historical answer first. And that's, of course, the etymology, you know, the Greek word, um, you know, philia or philos, uh, both meaning a love of and then... Sophia, which is the abstract noun for wisdom. So it's a love of wisdom, right? Okay. And what that really meant in ancient Greece was you loved all wisdom, right? Since the, old, the only disciplines that are older than philosophy in the West are math, specifically probably geometry, yeah. rhetoric, and poetics. Mm. Everything else, whether it was science or whether it was literary criticism, psychology, anything like that, political theory, that all fell under the the umbrella of philosophy. Yeah, if it's a love of wisdom. I mean, wisdom is just kind of knowledge. Exactly. And so yeah. that was what it meant to the ancient Greeks. And so as time goes on, that's still basically the answer was when you went to different universities, and this is a huge generalization because higher education, if there was higher education, looked differently from when Plato founded the academy in the um, third century uh, BC in ancient Greece to Oh, I don't know, the Renaissance, mm -hmm. Renaissance, if you will. Renaissance fair. Um, <laughs> but basically, there was philosophy and there was everything else. And that ended up being a very small subject. So, Kyle, you might uh, know the one of the foundational works of German literature is Faust, right? Yes. And Goethe starts the poem where he says, Ach, Jurasterei, uh, Medizin. Uh, philosophy and that auch theologie and so he names the four things in the medieval europe that you could get a doctorate in that was uh jurisprudence so law right mm -hmm. medicine theology and philosophy and those were it and philosophy was supposed to encompass everything that wasn't involved in theology medicine or law and mm -hmm. for a lot of history that was the case where it was science it was history, it was all these sorts of things were involved in philosophy. And to do one of those things, you could be called a philosopher. Now, were philosophers also, I mean, you know how sometimes villages have like a town, um, usually they're old elderly people, almost like a storyteller type thing. Would those all people also be called philosophers or no? It would probably depend on when and where. So in ancient Greece, especially after Plato, Mm -hmm. you might have people who would have done some philosophical training. And in Imperial Rome, for instance, and even in Republican Rome, I think, um, so we're talking from, oh, I don't know, the 200s BC to the 200s AD and beyond, a little bit until the fall of the Western Roman Empire, mm -hmm. then it was not uncommon to have philosophers as advisors. And so, you know, part of it just looked good to have a Stoic philosopher right. on board. And so you might have one, but... Being old and wise does not a philosopher make, in other words. And this is, gets into the definition. Mm -hmm. And so to finish up that story, that historical story, you start to get a bit of a distinction 
I don't know if it's about after Newton, but I think it is, where you get something that's called natural philosophy, and that's the love of wisdom of nature. It's okay. basically what we would call science nowadays. But um, again, to invoke the, the celestial language, German right, you have the Naturwissenschaften, mm-hmm. yeah, the natural sciences, but you also have the Geisteswissenschaften. And so you have the, the spiritual sciences. Yeah. It roughly corresponds to what we'd say the sciences and the humanities. Yeah. Um, but you start getting more of those distinctions. And nowadays, philosophy's children, uh, you would put it, a lot of disciplines that Plato and mostly Aristotle invented back in ancient Greece have become their own disciplines. So uh, physics is its own discipline. And psychology is its own discipline. And meteorology is its own discipline, yeah. right? There are all these, all these objects. And so some people might be wondering, well, what is philosophy left then? What does it do? And you've been waiting about six minutes for it, and here's the answer. If I were to define it, and define it simply, I'd say that philosophy is the study of basic concepts, like truth, justice, beauty, knowledge. Well, and all sides of that stuff too, right? Yeah. Not just one side of it, because one side would be like, a, you know, like oftentimes people get a degree in such and such with a an emphasis in something, right? It, philosophy is more more broad of, you know, looking at all sides of, of ideas, perspectives, that kind of stuff. I think it's a good way to put it. And I enjoy telling people whenever you start questioning the the methodological foundations of your discipline, you're engaging in philosophy. So let me give Mm. you an example. You're a biologist, right? And you're doing some investigations, right? You're, 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 let's say you're something like Darwin, you're investigating some birds in the Galapagos Islands, right? And then you're saying, yeah. And so (laughs) then you're saying, well, when I'm doing this, what exactly am I doing? I'm, I'm taking a look at facts about these birds and I'm saying that they're telling me something about life generally. Is that what I'm doing? And so there's a certain way in which you can wax philosophical in any respect, but Mm -hmm. that might not be what we think of as academic philosophy. Maybe, though, you're a biologist and you're saying, well, how do we know that the evidence for evolution is good? And when you start asking, well, what do we take as evidence in biology? Like, what, what does good evidence mean in biology? Then you're starting to get into the philosophy of biology, right? And the and in a broader sense, the philosophy of science, mm-hmm. where you're saying, well, what do we think is good evidence? What do we think makes a scientific theory true and all these sorts of things? And so you can do that for the philosophy of history, for instance, if you say, well, I'm reading this medieval chronicle and it says that the English longbowmen were able to shoot their you uh, their right good U-bows mm-hmm. and that the English longbow was so powerful that it could penetrate plate armor. Right. And as I understand it, I haven't looked into this recently, but that's still a debate among... Right, because it was always written by the victors. So, right? How yeah. much is, you know, actually true or not true? Well, and, well, and, and so that's, those, are, those are specifically questions about history. Where mm-hmm. it gets into the philosophy of history is, what do we think constitutes history? What kind of evidence does history... Uh, makes history? Like, what... What do we take as true in history? Like, is it the reports? Is it that we can verify it today? I don't know if you've heard of experimental psychology, but you'll have people who will uh, get an English longbow, try to build, excuse me, to the specifications, and then try to shoot plate armor. Mm. Some philosophers say, well, no, using modern equipment, so that that doesn't count, right? (laughs) Well, why doesn't it count? You're going to start making a philosophical argument about, well, this is why it doesn't count. So when is it philosophy? When is it a manic episode? (laughs) (laughs) Because you, you can talk yourself into a never-ending corner. Yeah. Well. Is it just through application you kind of, you know, make yourself no, out of um, it? Or that point, see, through uh, peers, maybe? Talk to a therapist. Peer-reviewed. So <laughs> David Hume has a bit of an answer to this. So David Hume is a very famous Scottish philosopher. He's often considered the best philosopher who wrote in English. Uh, even though his first language was Scots. Um, and I had two professors, who, both of whom I dearly adore, and they were both humans. And Hume isn't my favorite, but I wouldn't deny that he is one of the greats. Mm. At the end of the first book of his treatise on human nature, a treatise on human understanding, or I think it's, that's what it's called, 
he talks about, and he get, he waxes dramatic, you know, very theatrical. He says, I do, I'm doing these things. I'm talking myself in a corner and I appeal, I appear alien and, and monstrous to myself. And then he says, and then I start playing backgammon. I get a drink with the boys and it's all fine. So Hume's answer to that question, and you can see I'm already presenting this philosophically where I'm saying, well, here's an answer, right? I'm not mm -hmm. saying here's the answer. Hume's answer is to say, look, the way I see it, philosophy is very skeptical. You're not getting really hard answers in a lot of things, but nature has designed us in such a way that we're social beings. And so if I start interacting with people, then these kinds of questions will dissipate on their own. But if I were to give an answer to that question, I would say that it depends, which is an answer that you'll get from a lot of philosophers about a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. So when is it just a manic ap episode? I think it's a manic episode when you have a kind of mania. Um, if you are really struggling with anxiety and these kinds of things, then that's when it is. But what marks the temperament of a lot of people who go into philosophy is a comfort for ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Where they say, you know, I don't know what the answer is, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with trying to figure it out. And so people who really need certainty in a lot of areas, and they need an answer, and you're better off going into math. <laughs> <laughs> math is special. Math is, you know, true and false. Right. And, and that's why Plato, basically the, mod, the founder of philosophy as we know it in ancient Greece... Plato was a mathematician, mm -hmm. among other things. And there are stories of the ancient world of him being able to solve math questions and people going to him and solving math questions. And in his dialogues, he'll do these math things that are, that are really neat if you're uh, mathematically able to understand it, which, unfortunately, I usually am not. And so I have to look at the footnotes, and then I think, hey, I still don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> but his idea is that we need to make philosophy like math. We need to make it so that it's true and false in that way. And a lot of people have thought, I'm not sure if philosophy can do that in the way that Plato and his descendants have hoped that we could. Right, because no matter how you pursue philosophy, you have to make it, you have to apply it somehow. Uh, not if you're doing metaphysics. Metaphysics? <laughs> so I think it'd be helpful as well if we broke down some of the basic ideas of philosophy. Okay. There are a lot of different ways that you could cut the philosophical pie, but generally... Apple pie? I hope. I don't Chocolate. want it to be anything else. Mm. Generally, you'll get into the idea of theoretical philosophy and practical philosophy. Okay. So theoretical philosophy. Oh, like those... physics. No. No? Okay. No. Yeah, uh, go ahead. No, physics is a science. Right. That, but that just one... theoretical physics. And... Yeah, theoretical physics is, is a theory. So we're yeah. talking something like metaphysics. What is metaphysics? If I were to translate metaphysics from Greek to Latin, the word would be supernatural. Okay. It's the things that are above. Now, I don't want to make it sound too mystical because what metaphysics is trying to do is decide what is ultimately real, what is reality. When we're talking about what's an object, what do we really mean? Mm -hmm. I mean... Table's a, a, weird, a weird word. Right. And so when we say table, what do we actually... Not what do we actually mean by table per se, but what is a table? Mm -hmm. I mean, is it the case that a table is a table even if you cut it in half and glue it back together? Is it the same table? Oh, like the whole ship metaphor thing. Yeah, the ship of Theseus. That's yeah. a, that's a great example. That's a that's a metaphysical question that uh, Plutarch talks about. Hmm. So the ship of Theseus is an interesting example. Theseus defeats the Minotaur, and he uh, leaves Ariadne, poor Ariadne, um, and goes back to Athens. Well, to sum up the story, the Athenians launched the ship that Theseus brought back every year, but. Ships, as they do, they get old and the, the wood gets rotten. But the Athenians were great shipfarers, right? And so they replace it bit by bit. Despite the fact that every year it goes out, it's the same ship, mm -hmm. right? Well, that's the question. And so that's, a, that's an interesting and good metaphysical question is, okay, if it's not the same, same ship, when did it become a different ship? Was it when it was 50%? Was it when it was one plank? Was mm -hmm. it when it was the last plank? And so on. And yeah. so now if you're like me, you might get a little frustrated with this and think, I just don't know if we can get good answers. Right. But one of the problems with metaphysics is that it's very foundational, right? What you think about how reality is and what constitutes it, that's going to be very determinative of how you do the rest of your philosophy. So that's what metaphysics is trying to answer is those very basic questions. What is reality? What's it like? Uh, what are metaphys are there metaphysical objects? So, for instance, um, if you say, "Hey, there's the number one," 
your philosophy of math, and this is a metaphysical question is, does the number one actually exist, for instance? Like, not if I go to some obscure corner of the globe, like, oh, there's number one. I never right. checked, right? <laughs> but that's the question is, are there abstract objects? So these are, I mean, maybe if you've seen the Avengers, right? There's the Tesseract, you yes. know? And uh, if the videos on YouTube I've seen are any indication, Tesseracts are actually, well, I don't know what they are, but it's not a little cube that uh, Nick Fury is trying to get away from the bad guys, right? There are these kinds of objects that we have a hard time wrapping our heads around. Right. That belongs more to mathematics and uh, mathematical topologists. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing metaphysics, you're asking similar questions about abstract objects and what is reality and what is time, for instance. So there's a scientific answer to what is time, but what is our identity in time, for instance? So do we have parts that persist? Does the past actually exist? Does the future exist? So I know that I'm, for our listeners, you're probably just throwing out a lot of questions, but uh, that you're thinking, well, how does this all fit? And in some ways, that's good. This should be a little head-scratching. We right. wouldn't be discussing these problems still if they admitted easy answers of themselves, right? It wouldn't the, be philosophy. Exactly. We wouldn't still be asking these questions if they were so easy to solve. Another branch of the theoretical science that's very important is epistemology. Epistemology? Epistemology. So the Greek word, uh, that's episteme, which means knowledge, but it was in a very broad sense in ancient Greek. And then uh, a logia, that's an account of, a rational account of. And so okay. this is trying to produce a rational account of knowledge. So that's the question, well, what is knowledge? When you say you know something, well, what do you really mean? Are there conditions? So something that you very commonly hear is that knowledge is justified true belief. Justified truth belief. Yeah, Plato gives the great example of the of the blind man walking to Larissa. So if oh, you yeah. have if you have some guy and he's blind and he's walking from Athens to Larissa, um, a place that's I think north of Athens, but I might be wrong. Um, he's if he walks there and he's blind and he has no idea where he's going, right? Did he know how to get there or did he just get lucky? Right. Plato says, well, he just got lucky. And so what Plato's trying to figure out is, okay, well, what would it mean for me? for you to know how to get there. And Plato says, well, if you have a true belief, that is the path to Larissa is this way, you need to take these steps and you're Feel justified. Truth, yeah. Yeah. Like eyesight, for instance, would be a great way to justify mm -hmm. uh, your belief. And if it's true, you get to Larissa. Well, it's justified true belief. There are some problems with this uh, account potentially. And that's <laughs> been uh, a quest of epistemologies to try to figure out, well, are there different conditions? Does it have to be justified true belief in good conditions? You know, if it's moonlight, for instance, on your way from Athens to Larissa, does that change the game at all? Um, but that's a good question to ask yourself, though. What are my conditions for what is knowledge? Right. For what I know to be, to be true. And that can dictate a lot of actions. Yeah. And that might get more into practical philosophy. Like, what, what, uh, what, you what, know, what? Diet Coke is healthier than regular Coke. <laughs> well, what is your knowledge behind that? What are your conditions yeah. for that? Maybe you should question those, those conditions. Well, one of my religion professors loved to ask this, and this is a, a, a somewhat good way to think about epistemology. Those are just good questions to ask in any case, and that is, what do I know and how do I know it? Mm, yeah. But the epistemologist or the, the epistemologer, the, the philosopher who does epistemology, he isn't trying to figure out, well, what do I know to be true? He's just trying to say, what does it mean to know something period. Right. And this is important because, well, if you don't know how you know, well, what do you know that you know? Right. So that's an important way. And early modern philosophy from about the philosopher Descartes, who lived in the 1600s, he was a bit of a boy genius. If you guys remember doing geometry back in high school, where you had an X and a Y plane, like what's on the X? Yeah, he invented that. Oh, nice. Yeah, so, He's the XY uh, guy. Yeah, I think he did it before <laughs> the age of uh, 22. So He's uh, yeah, smart guy, as philosophers tend to be. He begins his philosophical career by asking these sorts of epistemic questions. At least that's the way he's usually interpreted. And so he changes the way that philosophy is done. So the general story goes. And philosophy begins to ask a lot of questions about epistemology and what does it mean? How do we know? How do we know that we know? And these kinds of questions. Another branch that's very important is the philosophy of mind. So what is a mind? Do we have a mind? This isn't just a question of the brain, right? I mean, philosophers mm -hmm. have always known that we've had a brain, right? A consciousness. Consciousness. Yeah. Is that something that's separate from the body? Is it something that could live after death? 
these sorts of questions and how might we know that? Right, and they're not like they're not like weighing corpses or anything like that. It's all just right. uh, you know, well, a philosophical way of thinking and yeah. uh, questioning. Yeah, and so one of my professors, uh, she does a bit of philosophy of mind, among the other things that she does, and what she likes about it is that there's a neat intersection between philosophy and psychology and neuroscience, so mm -hmm. you get to do a lot and try to think, well, well, do these scientific experiments have something to say about what consciousness or what our mind might right. be like? A lot of people say, like, well, that's just the way I am. Yeah. Right? I can't change who I am. This, I always do this thing, and is that... You know, is that, is that your consciousness? Is that your mind doing it? Or is yeah. it your body doing it? What's, and, what's separate from this? Yeah, you know? and there's another way to put that, and that is, well, are we free? Do we have free will? Mm -hmm. and so that's an important question in the philosophy of mind is, well, if I have this consciousness and it's somehow potentially separate from my body, does that mean that I can make choices that are independent? If you're what's called the um, a determinist with regards to free will, you think once the Big Bang happened, there are no decisions. <laughs> Um, we might have the illusion of free choice, but everything's already been determined. Mm -hmm. And so... Which is funny, because right now they're questioning even the age of the Big Bang at the moment. I, 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 I can't believe in determinism. I really can't. Yeah, because um, yeah, with the new telescope, they're like, oh, those galaxies are a lot more formed than they should be. Whoops, missed, let's, 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 we should probably think about this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so this is a question in, in the philosophy of mind is the question of free will. Do we have free will... How does that interact with determinism, with the scientific laws of the universe, since every time you drop a penny, it acts in the same way. We can measure that. We can even predict when it wouldn't. We can say that there's an infinitesimal chance that it'll just vaporize through mm -hmm. uh, the floor and all that. Um, but, you know, we have a pretty good grasp on these physical laws. So as of today, as of today, well, that's an interesting question for the philosophy of science, right? How do we know <laughs> what science is? How do we know that's true? Mm -hmm. Um, but that being the case, if it's the case that everything is determined by laws, how are human beings special? Why aren't we determined by laws? And I think, I mean, my answer is in some ways, um, and you can do this in philosophy, is like, I don't care. I mean, it really seems like I'm free. I don't see any way that you could convince me that I'm not free. One of my professors loved to talk about uh, skeptical um, situations. So something like The Matrix or The Truman Show, right? Yes. Or how do we know that we're not trapped in The Matrix? And if you tell anyone, and you really ask him, and he'll say, no, nah, I don't believe that. And right. he says, it's so strange that for so many people, you ask someone else, and you say, hey, you don't have free will. And then she says, oh, well, I guess I don't. And he says, why are we so, it seems, willing to say I don't have free will, but you say, hey, it's all an illusion. People say, nah, it's crazy. I don't believe in that. Right. So... Uh, another important one in the theoretical philosophy is the philosophy of language. And so this is the question of, well, what is language? How do we refer to things? If I say, hey, Kyle, would you uh, pass me the water? How did you know that I said that I was referring to that water? And this is one of those where, well, we all know that it happens, but how? Right. And so there are questions, and it's different from linguistics, because in linguistics, there's a whole branch there. You might be studying the question of, well, how do Russian verbs, how, is, how, does the, the sh how does the form of Russian verbs change mm -hmm. from the time of Tolstoy to today? I mean, so that could be a question of linguistics, whereas philosophy of language is trying to say, not how does Tolstoy use language in Russian, but how is it potentially that we can even understand written words, for instance? Again, not the psychology, not how do I read, but how do we know that words are doing what they're doing? And some philosophers say, well, they're not doing what we think they're doing, and others say that... Is it kind of similar uh, to that question is like, how do I know what's blue is, is blue for you too? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, that's more a uh, philosophy of mind. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, so it's... Um, it can be related, though. Like, how do I know that when I'm saying something that you don't, aren't understanding something else? So a great American What if you're not saying water, I don't, but I hear water, and I know this is water to me, but you said something else? <laughs> well, I mean, that that's an interesting one. Um... I mean, if I point, if I were to point and say something in a different language, you would still probably figure it out. I mean, mm -hmm. is there a psychological thing that we're not accounting for? But a great American philosopher by the name of um, Quine, um, see, I think it was Van Orman Quine, who um, was a very boring philosopher to listen to. Um, we're lucky that we can listen to some philosophers, and I thought, oh, I can't wait to listen to Quine. And I just listened to him and thought, jeez. Well, the name like that, yeah, it doesn't sound very good. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But he was absolutely brilliant. Um, probably one of the greats of um, 
of the last 50 uh, or last half century. And he brought up the indeterminacy of language question. And so he says, well, what if you go into some obscure African, I don't remember if it was African, but some tribe, and they point to a rabbit and they say some word. Mm-hmm. Quine himself was very was fluent in several languages, so he wasn't speaking from ignorance here. And he was like, Gavadi or something like that. Um, sorry, Quine, if I got this one wrong. Sorry, Quine. Yeah. Um, I know you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> but his his point was, how do you know that it just by pointing, you're saying or they're saying rabbit? Maybe they're saying, "Hey, this is the connection of several limbs into one form." Like it could be something more general. That's a question of philosophy of language. Like, how do we, how are we doing Which, same things in language? I like, mean, that when you learn another language, there are words that come up like that, right? From one language or to another, where you're like, "I know what you're saying." But we don't have this word in this other language that exists. Yeah. But, you know, like, well, like the word awesome. It's great in English. They don't really have one in German. Yeah. You know, they have other words of saying that they say for, you know, that kind of meaning, but it's not quite the same. And so, what Quine's point was, and this is a question of philosophy of languages, how do we know that we're meaning the same kinds of things? But also, you could say, how do we know that sentences are true, for instance? So, how do we know that propositions are true? How are languages connecting? What's the role of subordination in language? So you have words like that. So you say that, and that's going, that's somehow taking the sentence and putting it beneath another one. So there's crossover with linguistics and with grammar and philology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another area. Uh, I mentioned the philosophy of science. Yeah. There's the problem of induction, and that is, you see, this is a famous one, uh, because your average medieval philosopher would say, well, yeah, like a black swan. And that is, yeah, it doesn't exist. So, because in Europe, you see one swan, two swan, three swan, four swan, they're all white, right? Right. And then suddenly, Captain Cook goes to Australia, and bam, black swans. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. There are there are <laughs> black swans in Australia. Captain Cook. Yeah. Um, not that Cook. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's a, that's a bit of a question, is, look, we keep repeating these experiments. How do we know that just because we've done this, everything everywhere is going to act in this kind of way? And so that's referred to as the problem of induction. And so mm. one answer that um, Sir Karl Popper gave was, we're not. We're not saying this is always the case. We're saying, here's another instance that that's not the case. A lot of philosophers of science as well as scientists feel like, yeah, but I feel like when we're dropping a penny and we keep measuring, we're not saying, well, that's another instance that that didn't happen. That's another instance that that didn't happen, but it happened in this way. We're saying, this is how pennies act under the gravitational circumstances of the earth. Anyway, so that's a question in the philosophy of science that it's one of those things where, look, we're all sure that science works. I mean, there are some philosophers who will say it. Bertrand Russell has a great quote where he says, there's no theory so dumb and so ridiculous that no philosopher has suggested it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's hard to say all because, well, someone's probably defended something to get something published, right? <laughs> right. Um but we all know that science works, but it's one of those questions where, yeah, but how is it working, right? So I have a good friend, he's getting his doctorate at Penn State, and I try to ask him about the philosophy of science, and for him, it just doesn't matter. For a lot of scientists, they don't care. And that's fine, it doesn't mean that they need to do philosophy in order to be good scientists, although right. a little philosophy would go a long way, and can go in a long way. Right. Uh, maybe the last thing of the theoretical branches I'll mention is logic. It's a bit of a philosophical question where logic belongs because logic is the one of the first things that you should learn in philosophy, and that is how do arguments work? So, mm-hmm. if, for instance, if I say, if A, then B, if B, then C, therefore, if A, then C. I just did a hypothetical syllogism is what that's called. Right. Uh, and so logic is the question of, well... That's also a bit of a philosophical question. But if I say logic, I think you should know what I mean. This isn't like Ben Shapiro facts and logic or anything like that. It's the question of how do arguments work? What's the structure of them? And how do they work together? How do you make valid arguments? And so there's a, yeah, there are questions about that and so on. So the one that might be more interesting to our listeners are the practical uh, aspects. So one is ethics, also called moral philosophy. What That's should I do? A huge yeah. one. What's would the right you, thing to would do? You just do a loaf of bread to feed your family. Right. Um, or to feed your, your sister's children, as, as the case was for Jean Valjean. Oh, yeah. Um, 
what's the right thing to do? Is there a right thing to do? And then what, what are ethics really like? Are you following moral laws? State or, laws. So, so, so that's different. That's more political philosophy. So maybe you think, look. But you, but you could see it as moral life. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll get into that. I really love legal philosophy. That's yeah. a question of legal obligation. <laughs> but whether it's distinct from moral obligation, which unsurprisingly it's disputed. But <laughs> maybe you think that when, when you try to do the right thing, it's because you're following some kind of moral law. Right. So a lot of our listeners may be religious and they're thinking that, well, I do what's right because it's what God said. Now, well, and most people through the world usually say like, I'll keep the 10 commandments. Yeah. No matter what religion you are, there's some like form there's, of 10 commandments that you follow. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a similar basis of morality yeah. and uh, C.S. Lewis writes an excellent book, uh, which I highly recommend. It's really wonderfully written called the Abolition of man. And this is the point in his second, I believe, second book where he says, look, I'll call it the Tao. Call it what you will, but there's this common morality that exists for all men. Right. And he provides examples, and his is a sort of Aristotelian way of grounding it, where he says, look, if I had to explain it to you, you don't get it. Like, this is all just apparent to us, that there's a certain way to interact. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, that view is somewhat controversial. There are a few different ways of looking at it. So I, I talked about the religious one. Socrates, when he was going on trial for impiety, for corrupting the youth, um, <laughs> which is interesting, I love to talk about that, um, maybe on a different episode, but he meets a fellow whose name is Euthyphro. So Euthyphro, um, it means basically straight-minded uh, straight in Greek. Okay. And so some people think that Plato might have made him up. We don't have records of him anywhere else. And he's going to prosecute his father for uh, murder. And Socrates says, oh, you're, you are prosecuting your dad for murder. That's, uh, well, you must know what piety is. Now, piety means, well, what does it mean? It means respecting the gods in some kind of way. But that's what Socrates starts asking Euthyphro. So uh, in Athens, there were no lawyers. Whenever I tell people that, they say, man, the Athenians had it right. And then I say, yeah, you had to defend yourself in court. And then they think otherwise but <laughs> you also it was up to private citizens to bring up prosecutions euthyphro was breaking social to or social norms by prosecuting his dad it's like wow he's your dad how could he do his that dad. yeah uh now that might be weird in our day but back then it was even weirder and just how could you do that you should defend your dad to the death if you have to because there's more of a law to do that well we'll talk about that okay but what happens with Euthyphro and Socrates is Socrates starts in his very Socratic way, says, well, you must know what piety is. Why don't you tell me? And he says, well, piety is what I'm doing. And Socrates says, sorry, when I said, tell me what piety is, I meant what is it generally, not what a specific instance of it is. And he says, oh, well, it's uh, what the gods love. And Socrates says, oh, that's interesting. So it's what the gods love. But haven't you read Hesiod? He says, yeah, of course I read Hesiod. He says, well, you know, the gods fight. So if they fight, they don't seem to be in agreement with what they love. Right. He says, oh, well, I still think it's that. And then Socrates puts a dilemma. And it's been a famous dilemma ever since where he says, is piety what the gods love or is what the gods love piety? And basically what he means is, look, is something good because God says so, or is it, or does God say it's good because it is good? Okay. So to circle back, this is what makes it difficult for religious ethics is for a lot of people where they say, well, it's what God says is right. Um, some medieval philosophers like Dun Scotus, uh, which means Dun the Scot and William of Ockham, they say, yes, this is how it works. Uh, God's will is supreme. And you'll find that um, Protestant philosophical theology and Islamic philosophical theology normally goes along these lines. Yeah. Is they say, no, it's the will of God. That's what makes something right or wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, where there is a group of uh, other writers, other Christian writers who said, no, because if that were true, then God could just snap his fingers and make torturing a child okay. He could right. make rape or murder okay. That just doesn't seem true in any sense. Yeah, this side is, well, God it makes the law or is the law uh, rather than... You know, God abides by the law, and the law is good. Yeah, and so Mormons tend to be very comfortable with the idea because of Joseph Smith's King Fault Discourse, where he says, yeah, there are laws that God follow, 
And so a lot of Mormons say, yeah, okay, I'm good. There's a law that exists independently of God. Mm -hmm. He follows that. Done. But for a lot of other religious traditions, they find it's more of a struggle to figure out how that works because, well, if something exists outside of God, then isn't that thing better than God? Wouldn't that be worthy of his worship? But isn't God the best thing? And these kinds of questions. Mm. So that gets into philosophy of religion, which is right. another branch of philosophy. And that's these are kinds of questions about religion. Like, what's the nature of God? Uh, what's the nature of I feel like that's got to be a so really on. popular one. At BYU, you bet it is. Well, just uh, in general, I feel like most philosophy things probably probably gravitate to some tort type of religion discussion at some point. Yeah. Historically, most philosophers have been religious. Yeah. Uh, recently, that has not been the case. Um, philosophers have taken a very atheistic turn. And or agnostic. Or agnostic, yeah. 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 So, but even then, that's also a form of religion almost. Of atheism? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, speaking of arguments for the existence of God, and I should say that philosophy... That's what we do is we argue about things. We have right. opinions about everything. Um, I was talking to a, a friend of mine um, and uh, I said, yeah, this person's overrated. And her husband said, you think that this person is overrated? And I said, dude, you're married to a philosopher. You should know we have opinions about everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but point being, though, is that what distinguishes philosophy from just, say, poetry is we're not trying to say broad, true statements. We're trying to make arguments. So there's a certain structure mm -hmm. that goes into it. And that's why things can get a little questionable about who's a philosopher and who's not is, well, when this guy writes, is he trying to write in a structured argument or is he just trying to say some broad truths? Right. And if, there, if you get the structure, he's trying to say something about general things he's arguing towards it, then, yeah, we'll say that's philosophy. So would you say that they're ensuing chaos? What do you mean? To I mean to argue for the sake of argument. So the it, it can be chaotic at times. So or create chaos. It's not arguing for the sake of arguing. It's mm -hmm. arguing for a point, right? And people just disagree about that. Right. So for the case of God, you'll find people who are atheists, and they're atheists because they're saying, "Give me a definition of God that's not deficient." So the classical theistic conception of God is that He's all good, He's all knowing, He's all powerful. And then that's the question of the problem of evil, right? Mm -hmm. Is, okay, so you have this idea of God, and then you have evil. Well, if he's all good, he's all-knowing, and he's all-powerful, then because he's all good and he's all-knowing, he would both want and know that evil is bad and shouldn't be taking place. And therefore, because he's all-powerful, he would stop it. And so then your atheist philosopher might say, the concept of God that you've given me is deficient, and I can't believe in it. That's why I'm an atheist. Mm -hmm. And so the attempt that Christians and other believers have done in other religious traditions has been to modify that. So for instance, a, you know, a typical uh, LDS response is to say, well, and granted, this is also a t fairly typical Christian response is to say the evil brings about a greater good, right? Mm -hmm. So the Holocaust is awful. It's terrible, but you get the state of Israel out of it. And so maybe that's a greater good is a homeland for the Jewish people. Now, of course, your atheist philosopher might say, okay, well, that sucks for the Palestinians. And two, really? In order to create Israel, God had to have a third or two-thirds. Oh, I forget if it's one-third or two-thirds. I think it was one-third. Yeah, I think it was one-third. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking of <laughs> the joke. Six million? That seems kind of high. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're not into denying the Holocaust on, on this podcast. Mickey people. and I have both visited uh, concentration camps. Concentration camps. They are real. They are real. Um... And the birds don't fly in them. No, they don't. Which uh, yeah. a friend of mine pointed that out, and I wondered if, he, if that were if that was true. And it's reasonable about that. It's true. Yeah, they don't, which is interesting. But um, because it was eerily silent. Yes, it is. Wow, I just thought about that. Yeah. Jesus, wheeze. Okay, sorry. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but you know, if your God has to kill a third of the Jewish population to create a Jewish state and then kick out a bunch of uh, people who live there. That's not a very good God, mm -hmm. you know, might be the answer. Now that also might not be the best um, version of it. So you might say, well, there's all the suffering, but people become morally better, right? Unless people suffer, then you're just not getting anything good out of people. I mean, if it were just paradise, then how would we learn? How would we grow? And so this is the LDS. It's almost as simple as things. if you don't know the sour, then you don't know the sweet. Yeah. How do you know what salt tastes like if you haven't ever tasted it? Yeah. Now, an atheistic response will usually go along the lines of, really? 
again, your God is all powerful. This is what he came up with. He couldn't do better than this. He couldn't figure out a way for us to progress without their suffering. Yeah. (laughs) It's like he created, yeah. He created you, man. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and so you can go back and forth. I mean, the real problem of evil, I've heard it put that if the problem of evil doesn't take your breath away, you haven't really understood it. Dostoevsky does this very well in the Brothers Karamazov, where if you read when um, the older brother Ivan talks to his younger brother, um, Alosha, it's just, I had to put it down a certain point. I mean, he talks about some stuff and it's just, it's, it's getting at the point of the problem of evil that it should really shake you. Hmm. But if you keep reading, then Dostoevsky also has Elder Zosima and he has an answer and so on. And anyway, you should read Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky is great. Um, often considered the best novelist of all time. Hmm. So. Better than J.K. Rowling, people. Uh, yes, one hundred percent. Harry Potter's great and all, but uh, got nothing on Dostoevsky, yeah, uh, or Tolstoy for that matter. So, anyway, we could go back and forth. There are various arguments. Um, I think what the LDS response does that's important has to do with what we talked about with divine law, for mm-hmm. instance. Is that there are laws outside of God, and so if you say, "Look, it's not that God isn't all um, perfect." It's not that he's not all good and all knowing, but there are things that could be outside of his control. And what might that thing be? Free will, for instance. Right. He might not be able to control people. And he may have enacted it as well. Yeah. I mean, right. I personally believe that. Yeah. Um, I interpret DNC 93 as basically saying, no, uh, God didn't create us. He may have fashioned us with Heavenly Mother in some important way, and if that involves birth in a literal kind of way or metaphorical, who knows, cares mm-hmm. too. But I don't think he created our wills, and I don't think he can control them. Right. Which, why, is why I think Elder Maxwell says, well, that's why it's the only thing we can really give him. It's the only thing that he didn't create in the first place. Right. So now we've gone from the philosophy of religion to more the, uh, philosophical theology, where you're trying to do theology in a philosophical way, but oh, using structured arguments boy. and so on. So back to practical philosophy. So another branch that's important is political philosophy, right? And that is, what's the state? What's your society? And so that's related to social philosophy too, but I think we can consider them one for the purposes of this podcast. So if someone got a degree in political philosophy, they could be a politician? No, usually they just do political science. And it, oh, okay. So these are questions like, what is justice? What is fair punishment? Hmm. Um, They can be more mundane. If you start to argue about taxes, for instance, well, how much should the government take? This is a question of justice, right? But what does the ideal organization look like? What can the government do in the lives of its citizens? Is the government justified? Does it require justification? What kind of a thing is it? These are the questions that are salient to political philosophy. Hmm. Uh, And then... There's another uh, realm of practical philosophy, one that's, uh, that I quite like, and that's legal philosophy. And that is, what is justice also applies to law. So how might law carry out justice well? But also, what is the nature of law? Does morality play a role? Is there a necessary connection between law and morality? The natural law theorists say yes. The, po- the legal positivists say, no, you're off your rocker. And this is important because this will change the way that we think about law and how we interact with it. Is legal obligation, does that exist? Is that something important? Is that distinct from moral obligation? Mm-hmm. If so, well, that's weird. How, how does that exist? And so on, right? And then another branch that's near and dear to my heart is aesthetics, the philosophy of art. So what is beauty? What is art? What does it mean for something to be beautiful? And oh, does it on the record, Picasso sucks. <laughs> no one has two eyes on the side of their face, man. Nobody's trying to represent it differently. Yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> I mean, I won't. I won't pretend to love it either, but I won't say it's bad. <laughs> so these are some basic branches <clears throat> of philosophy. Now, there are ways in which the other branches of knowledge can interact with it, but they don't replace it, and that's why it still exists. So that is. I mean, we could keep going, but that's basically what philosophy is and what it's about. So what everyone wants to know is how does it apply? Well, it depends. Because you could, you could do all this and have zero jobs still. Oh, sure. So there's been, been studies, and I'd actually, I, I might find it for you so you can link it, and that's that philosophy majors do just fine job-wise. Right. Uh, they do better than 
Most, actually. Uh, well, it's like uh, when I have a group of, of leaders that I'm in charge of, I kind of like having a devil's advocate. Yeah. Because but, they challenge the status quo. They argue things that maybe things we do all the time. I need someone to question why we do things. And to me, that's yeah. somewhat philosophical just because they're not just going with the flow. Yeah, right? of course. They're questioning the why. But that might just be contrarianism, right? And if you're like me, well, it's, yes. it's, not, it's not good it's to... Not, it's not quite, you know, they're not being contentious in that kind of way. It's more, yeah. more positive. There's so. also the aspect that philosophy tends to... Well, there's a bunch of different ways you can interpret the data. So philosophy tends to attract people who are intellectually curious, mm-hmm. right? Philosophy is the ultimate meta-discipline. It gets at the roots of all these things. And so the kinds of people to attract are people who are intelligent and inquisitive. Right. Those kinds of people tend to just do well in, in You're situations. usually constant learners, right? Yeah. Which that is a, a trait that most successful people have, constantly learning. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And so that might be why they do so well is that they just, they know how to learn things and mm-hmm. they know how to ask questions. They know how to read well. Um, unfortunately, the one of the one of philosophy's best writers was Plato. And I say that's unfortunate because he was so early. Since then, we just... You know, Kant is just an incredible philosopher. He's just not the most clear mm-hmm. <laughs> writer. So that's been a salient problem in philosophy is that sometimes you just kind of scratch your head and think, man, what is he saying? <laughs> uh, but that's also because the subject matter can be kind of extract. So point is, you'll learn how to do difficult things because you need to learn how to read difficult things, interpret what it's saying, and then say something intelligent about that. I mean, currently my job is as a paralegal, and I feel like trying to read and interpret laws is a breeze. Uh, granted, I don't have the legal training to do it competently, but if I'm having to do some re- uh, legal research for the attorneys, then I feel like I'm in a very good position to do so. So obviously the sorts of jobs that require people to read, to write, to advocate certain points of view, and like you said, to question other certain norms or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Now, that's or, most jobs, heck, by the way. I mean, you know, if you look at any law and order, um, drug, judge room type of scene in, in, in a show, they're always questioning the morality of certain things or the certain angle of certain yeah. things, too. As so you can see the application there, for sure. Definitely. But as I pointed out, most jobs, I mean, I've heard that businesses are really struggling when they hire business majors because uh, not enough business programs equip their students to write very well. And so the ability to think deeply and say something is Mm -hmm. something that it can apply to almost um, any white collar job. Philosophy is great pre-professional degree. Um, BYU does just fine sending its philosophy students to the top law schools, to medical schools, to business schools, uh, these sorts of things. Philosophy is also very good for uh, preparing people for therapy, for instance since to be able to deal with ambiguity and not always be sure and try to work out, that can yeah. be very helpful. Yeah, because you can't be black and white when it comes to therapy. Yeah. I don't want to imply yeah. either that philosophy is just going to turn you into this kind of Superman. I really find it condescending when I just hear, you know, you got to be comfortable with ambiguity as of, hey, you know, I'm the guy who knows everything and you don't. And so what you think yeah. is wrong actually isn't. Right. Um, and what you think is right actually isn't. And I'm just smarter than you. And like so... I guess just a jerk. Yeah, and... We don't condone bullies. <laughs> <laughs> no, and to my philosophy professor's credit, none of them have done this, but I have heard he- professors in the humanities department who just say, comfort with ambiguity, man, and just wax <laughs> on, and I just didn't like it. It just came off as really arrogant. Yeah, this Man, I just know everything, and these little peons on the pews, they don't know what they're talking about, and I don't like that. One of the reasons why I don't like that is because I think that people are good at figuring out what's right and wrong, generally speaking. Now, if they're good at doing it, that's a different question. Mm. It's the question of the will, a very philosophical question. Yeah. Uh, what does it mean to have the will, and how does it interact with intellect? And that was a particularly salient question for a lot of medieval theologians and philosophers, but we won't get into that rabbit hole, especially since I'm not qualified to really talk about it. But... That being said, um, I don't want to make it seem like you go through philosophy and you leave and you just don't know anything. Um, Elder Bruce C. Hafen, um, whom I love and whose talks are really great, he talks about there being different degrees. I just say, listen to the talk. I don't know if you can attach that one to the show notes, but he talks about there are different degrees where, yeah, first everything's black and white and then things are just absolutely gray and then things become more black and white again. And that's a huge generalization. He does a great job presenting it. 
But the point being is that you can learn to deal with ambiguity in a healthy way, in the kind of way that doesn't make it seem like you're paralyzed by indecision, you don't know what's going on. If anything, I feel like if you're stuck in that phase, what did you really learn? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can approach these things. If anything, it's like, well, figure it out, man. <laughs> this is what you got the degree to, to do. Right. So when it comes to the application, then, yeah, when people say practical, of course I'll say, well, what do you mean by practical? And then push them <laughs> on that and then pull the whole Socrates on him. But one of the reasons why I love philosophy is, well, one, I, I can't imagine myself studying anything else. That's not true. I, I have three minors uh, besides philosophy. But that's really what I wanted to figure out was what are we doing? In a lot of ways, uh, I'd listen to these podcasts and hear people arguing and think, well, how do, how do you know that? How do we get here? And philosophy is the way to scratch that itch, to really crave that knowing is, oh, well, this guy is arguing this because he's approaching it from a very Kantian way, whereas this gal is approaching it from a very utilitarian kind of way. And that's mm-hmm. why they're disagreeing about the morals is he's saying this is what the moral law requires and she's saying this is what would be best for everyone and so on. And we also need a philosopher to break down every presidential debate afterwards. Uh, I wish that we did because yeah. um, then they'd be on that kind of level. Doing um, it live would be very difficult, but doing it afterwards in you know, a full-down breakdown of why things were said a certain way or maybe yeah. it's, you know ways you could interpret it yeah you know it really beneficial and i think that philosophy really helps pull away the curtain right so you, you know say don't mind the man behind the curtain philosophy really helps you identify mm-hmm. uh the oz's behind the curtain so yeah. to speak and you learn pretty quickly that the person who's most popular doesn't always have the best things to say so in fact usually he doesn't right and um and that when someone gets a prize for something, it's like, well, I mean, what do the people really know who have done it? And so while I don't want to make it seem like studying philosophy does leave you helpless and paralyzed in that way that I talked about Hume, thinking, oh, I'm a monster. I don't know anything. I'm so uh, paralyzed by indecision and I don't know anything. I also want to emphasize that in a lot of ways it's freeing, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to depend on someone else to do the thinking for you, right? You're able to reason on your own and you have people um, whom you've studied and you can bring that to bear, right? It's Which not... people could find discomfort in that. Sometimes people like when people are deci- when decisions are made for them. And it's true. And I yeah. think for a lot of uh, philosophers and philosophically minded folk, you just can't understand that. How, how could you let someone else do the thinking for you? I mean, of course there's room for authority. I mean, that's a philosophical question, right? Is yeah. how, does, how do you reconcile yourself to authority, blah, blah, blah. But for me at least, it's, well, I can figure these things out on my own now. I'm free. I don't have to depend on what what I was just taught in school mm-hmm. or what the government says or what uh, my what? local church leader just says, yeah. you know? And so now to quote um, scripture, you shouldn't have your liberty be a cloak for maliciousness, right? St. <laughs> Peter. Um, and I would hope that studying these kinds of things will create wellsprings of compassion, sympathy, and the desire will be to help other people and not to belittle them. Um, right. You should... You know, if someone if someone makes mistakes, especially if you you think it's egregious, you know, you should question where's that where's that coming from? Where's my where's my knowing of that that's being egregious coming from? Yeah, you know, of course, there's that moral law we kind of talked about before, but um, it's I mean, it's good to be curious. Definitely, it just is. And this is something that. Plato struggled with too. And he writes in the allegory of the cave uh, in book seven of the Republic, where you have people who are trapped in a cave and all they ever experience are uh, shadows on a wall. There's a fire pit behind them. They're tied up. And then they see some, some guys presumably just bring back some shapes and objects and people talk, Oh, there's this and Oh, there's that. And if this is something a bit like the matrix, it should, the matrix is, based uh, at least in part on the philosophy of, of, of Plato, at least as far as the allegory of the cave is concerned. Mm-hmm. Well, Plato says, what if someone gets out? Well, he gets out, he sees the actual world, and where he says, hey, that was a shadow of a horse or of a tree or of a flower. Now I'm seeing the actual thing for the first time. And then eventually he's able to perceive the sun. Now, a lot of philosophers, but also a lot of intellectually curious people generally, they experience, they go back down to the cave so to speak. They find that people aren't 
in, in Plato's version, they don't like the guy who's come back from the cave. And he says, well, if they could escape, maybe they would kill him, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that he's ref- uh, referencing Socrates and how that's what Athens does is uh, even though Socrates is bringing the higher truth, they kill him for it. They don't want to hear. But a lot of people really don't like the idea that, like I said before, hey, I'm the one who knows everything and you're an idiot and I'm going to teach you now uh, right. because you haven't studied philosophy. And so that's always a question is, what do you do with your education? How do you actually help people with it without being condescending, without being a jerk, but actually trying to help people? Sometimes the answer is, well, maybe you just don't say anything. But other times, for me, especially in questions of, say, religion, I think, no, this is important. And it is important that we believe the right things about it. It is important to believe right things as opposed to false things. So I will raise my hand and, and say something in, in Sunday school or Elders Quorum if need be. Uh, if Everyone I rolls their eyes be, like, yes. Well, I hope, I hope I figured out uh, how to do it more of a, oh, a better way. but More humbling way. Um, well, humbling to them, you bet. No. Um, <laughs> I actually have a really good Elders Quorum. Um, and Sunday school is pretty darn good too. So good. I, haven't had, I haven't had that problem. But, <laughs> but you don't want to make... Uh, your Sunday school, a Socratic seminar. You don't want to make it a philosophy seminar because that's not what people go to church for. Right. Um, you know, you're there to build a community of, of believers and to strengthen the bonds of Zion and, and all of that. And so uh, that's a different thing. But anyway, uh, maybe we should do that. Hey, if you're interested, where can I learn more? Yeah. So start with Plato. <laughs> Plato. Yeah. Anything in particular? Just anything Oh, Plato? sure. The Euthyphro. Read Socrates' Apology. The Republic is just fantastic. Um, it's hard to go wrong with Plato. I won't lie. Not all the dialogues are as good as all the others, but I think that, for instance, the Phaedrus, Socrates' great speech, is probably the best thing I've ever read. Hmm. Um, the Phaedrus? So, yeah, the Phaedrus, or it's also pronounced Phaedrus. Um, is that P-H? P-H, yeah. Hmm. Um, we can link it in the show notes, maybe. Um, a copy of it. Avoid the Jowlett translations. They're too old, and he tends to sanitize Plato a bit too much um, since pederasty was a thing in ancient Greece, and that made the people who were reading it uncomfortable. It should make us uncomfortable too, but we should at least be able to uh, read about it. Right. Um, I think Kierkegaard's a lot of fun. He really make you think. And there are tons of just beginner things. So there's the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Uh, use YouTube with caution. Yeah. Um, so you'll well, see, just use social media with caution. Absolutely. Yeah. So you'll see, I mean, Wikipedia is not a bad source. You won't get particularly deep. Um, I don't blame Wikipedia for that. They're just trying to provide an encyclopedia, worldwide encyclopedia, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, the Stanford encyclopedia is written for experts in the field, people who have degrees in philosophy. So even though it's a fantastic resource, you might find it difficult to engage with because it's expecting you to already have some philosophical background. Mm-hmm. So that's why more like the internet encyclopedia philosophy is good. Um, but onto that YouTube, like you'll have, there's one that I see recommended it where it's philosophy insights and then it's Jordan Peterson. And whatever you think about Jordan Peterson, he's not a philosopher. Right. Uh, he's a clinical psychologist. That doesn't mean he doesn't have good things to say or that doesn't mean he's said bad things. It's just, he's not a philosopher. Right. Someone so, can have, you know, ideas and opinions that they can share them. It doesn't mean you have to listen to them and, and know in the understanding that um, they don't, maybe don't have the correct background. Yeah. You know? So my YouTube channel of choice is philosophy overdose. Where, philosophy overdose? Yeah, it's just lectures by philosophers. Oh, there you go. Um, and it's hard to go wrong in that respect because it's just philosophers uh, doing it. You might find it dry. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, one other thing is don't feel bad. Just recognize, though, that you can't avoid philosophy. We live out the answer to philosophical questions that we have about what's the best way to live? What's the right thing to do? How should I interact with other people? And what do I think... Um, what does it, what does it mean to know? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? All these sorts of things are ultimately philosophical questions and you can't avoid them. And so for me, that's why I think, well, why would you want someone to just give you the answer? Right. Uh, how do you know that, that answer is right? And so on. And so being able to engage and to grapple with that, it's part of life. There's just so much to it. And that's why one of the, one of the many reasons why I love philosophy is it's a key to unlocking at least one door. And that is how do you engage with this entire existence you know everything that we're doing and all that so yeah that's my plug go study some philosophy read some plato philosophy overdose philosophy overdose is a great youtube channel to get started plato yeah okay we got 30 seconds for you better finish up 
Okay. We did it, McKay. You filled an hour. Oh, I could keep going too. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Got an entire degree in this stuff. <laughs> you know, we hardly even touched medieval oh. philosophy. It's just well, too bad. Sounds pretty evil to me. Just <laughs> kidding. Oh. Okay, thanks everyone for listening. Go to Reason Plato, Philosophy Overdose, all that stuff. And uh, enjoy your lunch. <laughs>